Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to the show today, I want to let you know about the big changes here on our team. We've now got six editors in both Asia and Africa producing some great journalism every day on what the Chinese are doing throughout the developing world. No one provides this kind of daily coverage about the Global South from the Global South. And that's why governments, think tanks, and investors around the world read our newsletter every day and rely on our website. If you'd like to find out what they're reading and get a truly unique perspective on China and the world, subscribe today. Subscriptions are super affordable, and you get 30 days free just to try it out. So go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, we're joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Cape Town, South Africa. Kobus, happy Chinese New Year. It's the year of the rabbit, or for those of us in Vietnam, year of the cat. Either way, happy New Year to you in Cape Town. Happy New Year. I hope there'll be much letters for everyone in the world. Yes, much lettuce. That's a good one. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> Hopefully this year is going to be better than last, but it's been a difficult past year for a lot of Chinese families. Even without the harsh zero COVID policies, the Chinese economy has been steadily decelerating over the past few years. Now, some of what's going on is because of the pandemic and the broader global economic slowdown, but there are also some structural issues in China, and that's what we're going to talk about today vis-a-vis unemployment. And the fact is that China is changing. It's offshoring more of its manufacturing as it moves up the value chain to focus more on tech, services, financial services, and whatnot. And we've talked a lot about that in previous shows. But the economy is also maturing. And those heady days of double-digit growth spurts that it had back in the 90s and the early aughts are now settling into low single digits instead. In fact, the figures for last year just came out, and they really don't look great. Overall, the Chinese economy grew by just 3% in 2022. Now, that's down from 8% the previous year. And COVID messed a little bit of that up. But just to put this in context, last year's growth rate was the second lowest of the past four decades, so past 40 years. And as companies face a lot of uncertainty, they're just not hiring as much, and that's having a devastating impact on young people in particular. Get this, Cobus. Unemployment among people aged 16 to 24 in China is almost 19%, just shy of the record 20% that it was last summer. And even for those who do get jobs, they often don't pay very well. They're in the services industry. They're low-skilled. And in many instances, people are also way overqualified. You have to remember that this generation of young people is among the best educated in China's history. So after working so hard to get a degree and to get that education, and then to find out there isn't any work is incredibly frustrating. And Kobus, I don't have to tell you that. No doubt this is a familiar story to many young people in South Africa and across the continent where youth unemployment is also a crisis. 
Yes, uh, South African youth unemployment is a real crisis. It's standing at 64%, which, you know, it's, it's difficult to imagine that one can run an economy with, with 64% youth unemployment, but here we are. And then continentally, it's, it's slightly better, but the, you know, kind of you're talking between 16 and 24, it's similar rates, also in the low 60%. And then from 25 to 39, like continentally on Africa, it's still 42%. So, it's high. And it's but because it's such a young population, it's a real political time bomb as well. Well, it looks like that more young people in China are looking to places like Africa as a way out of the unemployment crisis. And that's why a story that ran on the Chinese website Sixth Tone right before the Christmas holiday really caught our attention. And even it came up in our discussion with Hannah Ryder a couple of weeks ago as well. With jobs at home scarce, young Chinese are heading to Africa. It was written by freelance journalist Li Yijuan, who joins us today from the eastern Algerian city of Amenas. Yijuan, welcome to the show. Happy New Year. Thank you, Eric. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the article. It was a fascinating article. A lot of people were talking about it on Twitter. Uh, You got quite a bit of attention because I think it caught a number of people by surprise that in a continent, as Kobus pointed out, where youth unemployment is very high, we've become accustomed to China, this boom economy. It's the second largest economy in the world. And if you listen to official Chinese kind of messaging about you know, what's going on there. Everything seems fine. And yet there is this issue of youth unemployment. So let's start our conversation there before we get into the article itself. And tell us a little bit about, especially as a young person yourself, what is it like for young Chinese graduates who are trying to find a job? And this is what then, of course, provoked you to do this article. Um, speaking from my own experience, uh, the current job situation in China is not ideal. We have talked about like the COVID really rampaging the economy of China and a lot of companies are laying off staff and the new graduates are most often the, facing the most difficult crisis of finding a job. And I think economy is just one part of the story. There's another story about the idea of evolution. I don't know if you're familiar with this concept. It's Anthropologist Xiang Biao explained evolution as the, the experience of being locked in a competition that one ultimately knows is meaningless. So I think evolution is also key to the youth unemployment rate because everybody like us, the young graduates, are just heading towards the same direction. Maybe there's uh, someone said like the, the internet giants have good job prospects and everybody aim for that. And then uh, someone suddenly said like civil servant are good aim and everybody aimed for that because kind of the Chinese education trained Chinese students to aim for like the single best thing, like the Gaokao and then the graduate entrance exam and everybody just flocked to the same direction. That's why it's so hard to get a job. So I think youth employment for one thing, it's about the economy. For another thing, it's about the kind of short-sightedness in the Chinese society. That's what I think. So in your article, you point out a third problem, which is that a lot of graduates that don't come from top tier universities face, you know, a lot of unemployment pressure, you know, they face a lot of difficulty to find a job. So I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of background knowledge for people who don't 100% understand Chinese education system. What are Project 211 and Project 895 universities? And what does it mean to not be in any of those two groups? 
Actually, there's a typo in the article. It should be Project 985. I'll explain a bit. So, so in Chinese education kind of hierarchy, there is this top university, the four top university. I would say it's Tsinghua, Peking University, and Fudan University, and Shanghai Jiao Tong University. So after that, there is this, I think it's C9. Then the, after that, there is this 985. That's like the top university from different provinces. And then there is the Project 211 that's like slightly including more universities. And that's like the good ones. And then there is this double knot. Double knot means they're not in the Project 985 and they're not in the Project 211. Basically, those are like the mediocre universities. And in my articles, all the interviewees are from double knot. And actually, this is very interesting because it shows that how, how short-sighted like, the students from top universities are like. They are all aiming for like the most secure, the most profitable job, which is hard to get right now in China. While the double knot, because they, perhaps because they don't have many choices, so they decided to head to a new continent to explore opportunities. So let's get into that. So it's difficult for Chinese young people to find jobs, especially those not coming from the top tier. After all, there's never a recession for the top 5%. So we're not talking about the students at Beida or even the top students at Fudan or Tsinghua because they've got good relationships, good families. They've got great grades. You, you know, the big companies, Alibaba, Tencent, Kuaishou, they'll always take the top 5%. You're talking about the bottom 95%, the rest, everybody else. What are they going to do? And interestingly enough, they're starting to look abroad. And you came across the trend that people are looking again at Africa. The reason I say again is because this was in fashion. I'd say, Kobus, do you remember? This is not a new story with China. It fell a little bit out of fashion. But I remember early on in our coverage of this back in the early 2010s, there were a lot of Chinese young people that were going. Remember, there was Huang Hongxiang with China House, and he was bringing students over. There was a little bit of movement in that way. It kind of went out as China's economy went into the tech space a lot more, and the jobs kind of dried up you know, overseas. But now it's back again. So, Yijuan, let's get into why Africa and not, say, other parts of the world. What was it about Africa that appealed to some of the people that you spoke to for this article? Okay, so it's a very interesting question because this is exactly how young people differ from like previous generations. Because I, for the article, it's not in the article, but I interviewed also like headhunter who focus overseas employment for experienced workers, which means they're not fresh graduates, they're not young graduates. And the headhunter told me that uh, those with work experience would prefer Southeastern Asia, probably because they are closer at home. And or Europe and America because they are like uh, more developed. And she even said like if someone wants to go to Africa, they either had worked there before or some people told them certain jobs there is good because like people have this stereotypical conception that Africa is poor and everything. So back to the question, why young people are choosing a place like Africa? We talked about competition, like they don't have many choices. Involuted society, it's just they tend to ha aim for like a less competitive field and Africa certainly. Because even though we're talking about the trend that graduates are going to Africa, most of the people, like if you grab a random Chinese graduate and ask him or her about the question, what do you think about Africa? Do you want to work there? I think the answer is probably no. So that's one thing. And the other thing is like the job opening. Like all my interviewees, they didn't even come across job openings in other parts of the world. And also, like, there's data in my article as well that China-Africa trade 
are kind of still booming. So there's, and also Africa is a continent with a lot of infrastructure projects. So they need people. Like the main interviewee that I had told me that basically you apply there and they immediately take you in. They are always lacking people kind of thing. And also for any cross-continental, cross-national, transnational company to assign a new person out of school, Africa is probably the most likely place to be assigned to. And did you get an impression of any particular African countries being very popular among these graduates? In the article, you mentioned Guinea, you mentioned the DRC, Algeria. It seems like geographically quite kind of dispersed. Are they concentrating on specific countries or is there kind of a, are other factors in play? I think for state enterprises, it really depends on the infrastructure projects. My interviewees who, when I wrote the article, they weren't sure where they were assigned to, but right now I think uh, they are either in Nigeria or Tanzania. So I think because there's also private companies and there's also kind of other organizations, not companies, uh, like uh, like uh, international organizations based everywhere in Africa. So I think it's quite diverse the countries that they are going to be assigned to. It's basically all over the continent. And when you spoke with the headhunter, was that individual looking for people to place in state-owned enterprises or private industry or both? What were they doing in terms of placements? Uh, the headhunter they did for like uh, all kind of job openings for the like uh, human resources personnel in specific enterprise. They are just looking for people for their own companies. And they're not looking for anybody with any experience. Do they have to speak English or French? Are there any requirements or is the bar pretty low? You're Chinese, you're available, you're cheap. Let's send you over there. It really depends. For example, like in Africa, because uh, lots of countries speak French. So when they are recruiting, there's a large number of needs for translators. So that would need to have language skills. And for others, like the accountants, the financial workers, they probably have a basic English understanding, but that's it. I think the bar is not that high. They need people and the threshold is not that high. So you had very interesting conversations with some of these people about their experiences there. And kind of they were, in some cases, very positive. In other cases, they also raised some frustrations and difficulties that they face. So what, what, have, what have been the kind of pluses and minuses for these young Chinese people in moving to Africa? For the Pluses, it's of course a salary. First, it's, there is a job there. And then the salary is generally way higher than in uh, than jobs in China. Uh, so, so I think financial incentive is the first thing to consider for the young graduates. And then there is this vacation. It's really generous vacation. And we're talking about like three months of work and one month of leave, paid leave, or five months of work, one month of paid leave. It varies from company to company, but it's generally quite a lot. And also you get weekends and you get holidays from both countries, like China and the country they are assigned to. So it's it's a vacation, it's also a lure. And, and then, then they also provide um, housing and probably food to some extent too, exactly. like a canteen where you don't have to pay for food. So you think about if you're living in Shanghai or Beijing or Shenzhen, the cost of housing, the cost of food eats up an enormous part of your income. And if you don't have to pay for that, you're just banking most of your salary. So no wonder they seem to like it. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. You go there and you get the salary and it's all yours. <laughs> Is it hard for them to leave that? Because I remember when I was living in Kinshasa many years ago, I came across a number of young project managers and engineers. And they were college graduates. They were white-collar workers. And they said that the deal was they came out of school much like this. They got a job with a Chinese state-owned enterprise. And they thought they were going to do maybe two or four years. And they do a couple of different tours, a couple of different projects. And then they would go back to China. 
the state-owned enterprise would say, if you help us in Bolivia or in Botswana or in South Africa or wherever, we'll then place you back in China. Well, it turns out that there weren't any jobs in China. So what ended up happening is that they kept getting reassigned to different companies and different opportunities around the world. And their parents and their family members also didn't want them to come home. Because as we pointed out, the money's good. So the parents were saying, stay where you're doing and keep sending money back home. So there's a lot of pressure on these young people not necessarily to come home. Did you get a sense when you were talking to people like 24-year-old Zhu Ying, who you interviewed for the article, did they want to do this for a short time and then go home? Or were they going to make a life out of living abroad? It's like right now, because he hasn't been assigned right now, he could just uh, imagine the life in the future. For him, it's like uh, currently because he doesn't know what the situation is like. He plans to stay there for three years and then then go back to China. But he's not rejecting the idea of staying in Africa to build kind of his own career there. It's like staying in Africa or just build up uh, the life abroad. He, he didn't mind that. And he, I think his family, his father is just, uh, especially supportive for him to kind of venture outside and I mean, yeah, it's kind of like that. Even there is a saying in the Chinese in Africa circle. It's like once you, you stay one day in Africa, then you stay your whole life in Africa. I have met many, many people in Algeria <laughs> that uh, they, they came here just to stay for a year or so. And then, and then right now, suddenly 20 years has already passed. They are almost retiring. So, so it's like this, yeah. Well, I have to be honest with you. I went to Vietnam much the same way. We said, we're only going to do a year or two. And here we are 10 years in at, in Vietnam. So, Kobus, this is not a phenomenon that is unique exactly. to Chinese in Africa. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned also that a lot of them are quite anxious around issues like, for example, you know, pressure from their parents to get married by the time they're 30 or to start a family or to buy an apartment back in China. And and, and one, one of the people you interviewed said that she sometimes kind of is that she kind of finds herself crying and worrying about the fact that she's spending her youth in this other continent and not at home. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like these kind of like, what is the kind of emotional impact on them and the, the impact on their relationships through being overseas for so long? Yeah, this is tough, especially for some very strict enterprises. They kind of uh, uh, restrict your movements. You, you you kind of just uh, work and then you stay in the same compound or the same campsite. So it's difficult. It's very easy to suffer emotional breakdown, especially if you don't have any friends here and you don't really get to have a relationship. Because I hang out a lot with the translators and interpreters here. They're girls and they're kind of like embarking on their early 30s and they the end of 20s. They, they haven't found their boyfriend and they haven't uh, found uh, anything like that. So so it's, it's enormous pressure. Like they are like this three months in Africa and then go back to China for one month. And this one month they're just allegedly searching for a partner. So that's one difficult thing. But I know someone who stayed here for several years and then went back to China and then get married, had children, and then get out to Africa again. So that's also something that's happening. Well, and that's not an issue that, again, is unique to Chinese. Expats from all over the world oftentimes tend to be more male than female because 
it's just easier in many respects. It's much more difficult for women than it is for men to do this because of family obligations, social pressures, as you've talked about, also not as many career opportunities in many countries. So were the young people that you spoke with, what was the breakdown between men and women? Are there more women interested in going overseas or is it equal in terms of the interest of Chinese young people that you interviewed for the story to look at a place like Africa? Going there on site, I would definitely find there's a very disproportionately male-dominated atmosphere. There's not many female. But when I interviewed, because most of them, I found them online, and uh, the female groups tend to like to share, and they are mostly translators. Translators mostly female, so, so there's this difference. I mean, in reality, there's definitely more male. But uh, when I did this article, it gives me this impression that there's more and more female interested in this path. In relation to the challenges they face in different African countries, uh, one of the, one of the issues that rate, rated quite highly was healthcare. And you you quoted one person who actually got to contracted malaria five times in a row, which sounds a lot. So I was wondering, you know, kind of which health challenges they face, and then which kind of other challenges they face in Africa. For like healthcare, like in most of the countries here, there's not very good healthcare system. So like the interviewee in my article also mentioned, like because malaria for her, it's not like the worst thing. He She has already contracted so many times and got healed uh, and she didn't find it to be too troublesome because there's the mature uh, system to cure this. But like the uh, smaller illnesses, like chronic illnesses, uh, like toothache or like uh, kind of uh, headache or something, stomachache, these things, uh, it's hard to get treatment. Uh, like back in the COVID times, there's a cook who kind of get a tumor-like thing. So it's impossible to get treated here. And back then, getting back to China is so difficult. So uh, even if there is uh, Chinese medical like volunteers here, but it's just not sufficient. So this is, along with security, security and healthcare, I think is the most the fear, that the, the priority fear that young graduates have. Yeah, well, that's understandable. I think, uh, again, a lot of people probably have the same concerns. We have an interesting situation here, given the fact that not only did you write about young people going to Africa, you yourself are a young person who's gone to Africa. You're in Algeria. And I think it'd be interesting just to hear, what do you think of life being overseas in Africa and working in the Chinese community? Tell us a little bit about your impressions. Yeah, uh, so far, I have been in Algeria for over three months. And so far, I found it to be quite amazing. For the first three months, I stayed in the capital, Algiers, and uh, I find it to be, first there is Mediterranean, then there is always the sunny sky and and it's, this climate is great. It's just great for me. And also for most African countries, I think they have generally have a good relationship with China. So when I was in Algeria, I, I feel extremely welcome. Basically, every time I went to the street and they, they saw it, they, they would say ni hao or they, they would want to take photos with me. So... Uh, and when I, uh, when I have some travel, they are also very kind to help. Uh, also, this is a country where they speak Arabic and French. So I stayed here. My French improved very quickly. I started to learn Arabic. And um, there's also this incredibly interesting culture, Berber culture. It's actually, I don't know how to call it, but the ethnic cultures. So I'm learning a lot of new things. So as a young Chinese graduate in Africa, I think life abroad really helps me understand a lot of things to learn about new things. And yeah, it's general experiences like this. And working with the Chinese community is also smooth. 
I didn't even get the chance to feel the culture shock and homesickness because, uh, you know, it's really like a, a specific area where, where it's so Chinese. So, yeah. It's that's like living exactly. in a mini China, like a little China. Exactly. Back in Algiers, I just thought uh, we have this compound. We only have this compound. But once you get into this compound, the decoration is Chinese, the food is Chinese, we speak Chinese. So it's really like a mini China. I mean, half of my coworkers, I don't think they use foreign language. So. It's very interesting. As as we mentioned, you know, the like the spending time overseas tends to then shape these these students' future plans. And so, so I was wondering, kind of, how you are thinking about your own future. You now that you've been there for three months, are you thinking about that staying there a year or two and then going back to China, or are you thinking of maybe going to a different country after Algeria? Personally, I I'm here for an internship, and I will go back to China. I think after another three months and then I will graduate from school and actually I'm thinking about finding another internship to get back to Africa again and then that will be six months again and then I will decide because I, I personally I, I, I personally want to write so I don't particularly think about my future to find a job. So I have also another classmate who is interning in Nigeria so it's like because jobs are so hard to get right now we're lying flat this is like the off-the-common conception of evolution. We're just trying to experience the world and then decide later. So it's like, give us a chance to reflect. And when you post on your WeChat Moments, and for those of you who don't follow, use WeChat, WeChat Moments is a little bit like your Instagram timeline or your, your Facebook newsfeed, and it's where Chinese will, will post photos and updates and things like that. So when you post on your WeChat Moments pictures and, and things, what are your friends and what are your family saying about your time there? Are they worried for you? Are they think it's great? Or are they, you know, what's their reaction? I my posts are, are very very fun. <laughs> I post about life here, like like what the new culture or like what local people are doing. So they they sometimes say they think I'm not here for an internship. They think I'm here for a vacation. So so they they're one hundred percent not worrying about me. They are just so happy that I. And your parents are not worried either. Your parents are cool with everything. My parents are very very kind. They they are cool with everything. Okay, okay. Well, everybody, the article is with jobs at home scarce. Young Chinese are heading to Africa. It's by freelance journalist Li Yijuan, who is also a student. And her herself is someone who is experiencing Africa and, and seems to be loving it. I wish I could see your WeChat Moments timeline because it sounds like you're having a whole lot of fun. We will post a link to Idrin's article in the show notes. Idrin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate your insights and we hope that you enjoy the rest of your internship and your time in Algeria. And more importantly, we hope that you write about it someday for Six Stone so that we can learn more about what you did. Yeah, sure, sure. I'd love that. Thank you. Kobus, Ijen, and all those young people who are working for these overseas companies, they are China's secret weapon here. And this is something I've been saying for years. They are China's secret weapon because the Chinese are sending over thousands and thousands and thousands of people to work overseas, not just in Africa, but also in South America, in Southeast Asia, even here in Europe where I'm right now. And they're getting all of this incredible international experience. One of the things that I note is in Vietnam, for example, you don't see American young people anymore coming over. You don't see them developing these experiences the way she has, learning about how to operate and do business in other cultures. And the fact is, is that someone like Idrin, now she may not stay overseas for 20 years 
But a lot of these young people are going to stay overseas and they're going to learn how to build infrastructure, how to do projects and how to do so many things. And again, I come back to the fact that I think this is going to be or it is their secret weapon in their ability to project themselves into countries, you know, all over the, the global south. It's really powerful. I think so. And it's such an effective way of building relationships and, you know, of, of boosting competence, you know, in, in, and, and expertise among young Chinese workers. I think it's, it's actually in lots of ways is really beneficial for both sides. Um, the, the issue, I guess, is, you know, is that in, in a lot of ways, these Chinese students are doing work that many Africans wouldn't be able to do, you know, particularly because so many of them work in either as translators specifically or in Chinese language environments where they need to, you know, for example, you know, do the accounting for a company where the headquarters is, is in China. You know, so it isn't really a situation where, you know, we mentioned the very high African youth unemployment issue at the beginning. And it isn't, I think, a situation that these Chinese um, workers uh, or students are, are necessarily like taking "quote unquote" African jobs. But it's, it, it, you know, kind of, it, it would be interesting to see in the slightly longer term how many of them actually stay in Africa, how many of them set up their own businesses, how many of them kind of like decide to kind of integrate into these societies, and how many go back. You know, kind of, I, I, it'll be interesting to see kind of what the kind of long-term developmental impact of it is, you know, both in Africa and in China. I'm going to agree with you and slightly disagree with you on your assessment that Africans couldn't do the jobs. You go into most American companies overseas, and I used to work at Ford in China. And at Ford in China, all of the accountants, all of the bookkeepers, all of the administrative staff, they were all Chinese. In fact, I think 60 to 70% of the executive leadership was Chinese. In Vietnam, it's the same way. The American companies and the British companies are not importing legions of their own people to go do accounting and bookkeeping in Saigon. That is all outsourced to local or it's all hired locally. So yeah. I think Chinese companies tend to be way more provincial, way more conservative. They don't like having as many foreigners, you know, working in their companies. They like a clear division between, uh, you know, the Chinese side and the foreign side or the international side. And this is something that just goes back a long ways. I, I remember when I was trying to get jobs when I was younger in companies and the fact that I spoke Chinese was a detriment. <laughs> you think, What? Because they like to control the communication. That is, inside the organization, they want to be the ones who speak English and speak Chinese. And oftentimes in executive management roles, they don't want the kind of host country or foreigners to be able to speak Chinese so that they can't participate in some of these communications internally. And so I think the Chinese management way is one that is nowhere near as progressive as those from other countries. So I would bet dollars to donuts that Ford South Africa is 90%, if not higher, South African. I have a feeling that there's a lot more that Chinese companies could be doing to hire locally and to train locally. Yes. In talking with kind of labor experts before, we, we've seen that, you know, that, that hiring of African students or, Afri you know, hiring of Africans is increasing, you know, in, in Chinese companies. And that the, it generally breaks down to a rough kind of, you know, kind of 80% local, 20% Chinese, and those 20% tends to then be the highest paid and management. You know, and, and, and we've, I've seen kind of anecdotal evidence from uh, or accounts from, from different people that there are more Africans who spend time in China who speak fluent Mandarin getting hired by Chinese companies now in Africa. But I, th I think it's still a very similar kind of situation, as you mentioned, that it's, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, if you spend time in China or you speak 
fluent Mandarin that you will necessarily, that it will necessarily make it easier for you to get a job in a Chinese company. Like I, I experienced the same thing in, you know, kind of in, in terms of speaking Japanese. It's like I did not, speaking Japanese gave me a lot of benefits, but it didn't give me any benefits in, in terms of like getting actual uh, an actual job in Japan or in a, a Japanese institution. It just didn't, you know, and what then frequently becomes a situation is that, is that, that those kind of language skills are turned in a different direction rather than starting into a Chinese enterprise, they, they it, it ends up kind of facilitating other ties to China that then that then get kind of built into into African businesses in some kind of way. So it'll be interesting to see whether it's with this kind of current wave kind of of, of, of Chinese people kind of like moving into these African jobs, like whether that's different or whether it's a very similar kind of situation. And I think we have to be a little bit more precise in our definition of Chinese companies. We've been using that a little bit loosely here because I think Chinese companies in the private sector in Africa, Startimes, Transin, Opay, Huawei, I think have done excellent jobs in localizing. I don't think those those are great examples of how, in that sense, those companies have local bookkeepers, local accounting, local administrative staffs, you know, and I think they've done a fantastic job. I think there's a lot of evidence to back that up. That's in part why they've been so successful because they have localized so well. The state-owned enterprises, though, are very different. I think those are much more conservative. And then I think it's really important for us to talk about the labor issue, because that's the one that a lot of people still kind of hang their hat on in terms of of the Chinese and in labor. Again, I'm going to go back to research done by Carlos Oya at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies that he did, what was it, two or three years ago? I can't remember, but it was a few years ago. And he looked at local labor hiring in Angola and Ethiopia. And the numbers were north of 85, 90%. And that is consistent with other research that we've seen on that too. So local, you know, blue collar hiring, I think has gone local. What we're talking about and where I was kind of drawing some criticism was probably in the state-owned enterprise, which is still a very large presence in many African countries. When you think about Sino-Hydro, CRBC, China Road and Bridge Corporation, these are massive entities. That's where I think they have a little bit more room to grow. But I don't honestly think they're really going to change. Those state-owned enterprises are state-owned enterprises. I used to work for a state-owned enterprise in France, France 24. Oh my God. I mean, it is just, I wouldn't sick my worst enemy to work for a French state-owned company. (laughs) I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And I think they're just very complex places to work because of the state relationship that they have, whether it's France or China, it doesn't really, and South Africa. Oh my, I've heard nightmare stories about uh, South African (laughs) state-owned enterprises, same dynamic. So that's probably beyond reform, but I do think it's important that when we talk about Chinese companies, and I'm using my air quotes that you can't see in this audio podcast, we have to be specific about private sector, state-owned enterprise, blue-collar, white-collar, and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then also kind of make the distinction between project specific work and other kinds of work, you know, kind of because a lot of a lot of these state owned enterprises don't necessarily have a permanent, you know, kind of presence in a, in a particular country. They, they're there for specific like kind of long term projects. That would then like run over, say, four years or something, you know, and then and then things change, you know. So it's not necessarily that, you know, it's it's literally that people it's not necessarily that people are setting up there permanently. Last point that I want to make, which is I hope that the conversation with Adrian also helps to debunk some of the myths about China that are still incredibly pervasive in many parts of Africa and in the African discourse. So there are two giant myths that she touches on. Myth number one is that China is this 
superpower economy that's only kind of, you know, a rocket engine taking off and it's growing and it's everything's great. This youth unemployment problem is a big problem. The Chinese economy is clearly in trouble. They're not alone in trouble, but they're in trouble. I mean, there's no two ways about it. The debt levels in many parts of China at the provincial level, at the government level are off the charts. There's a lot of challenges facing Chinese policymakers today, and I don't think anybody would deny that. It's not a controversial state. Uh, So I think it's important to be sober about the realities of the Chinese economic situation. That speaks a lot to the broader debt issues that you and I have talked about for so long. The fact is, I don't believe the Chinese are lending as generously as they were simply because they don't have the cash anymore to do it. This is not what it was 15, 20 years ago. So I think that's really important to dispel. This came up this week, and you covered it, Kobus, in Uganda, and their kind of cancellation of a Chinese rail contract for about $2.3 billion. I did not like the way that the media framed this story. I don't think Uganda canceled the loan contract. I think the Chinese gave them the cold shoulder and said, we're not going to fund your railway for $2 billion. Because A, we don't want to fund railways for $2 billion anymore. And B, we don't have that kind of cash lying around the same way we did you know, a couple decades ago. So that's number one. Number two, and we hear this over and over again, particularly on social media, largely from people who are uninformed on the topic, that China has, quote, too many people. And we just heard this week, for those of you who follow this, that China's population went down for the first time since it's been taking records. So China literally has the opposite of too many people. It's got too many of the wrong people. And now the wrong people are too many old people and not enough young people. And so it is facing the same problem that Europe is facing, that Japan is facing, South Korea, any number of advanced countries where it's got a upside down pyramid where young people are supporting an enormous graying population. And so China does not have the labor to export overseas the way it did 20, 30 years ago. It does not have a population of two and three billion people like what a lot of people say on social media. And in fact, now we're going to see this year maybe a very important milestone, Cobus, when India surpasses China to become the world's largest country. So all of those trends in many ways are tapestries of what Yi Jun was kind of talking about with the youth unemployment issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, with that, then it also, you know, kind of, we, we've had um, a few interviews with demographers over time where they were also pointing out this issue of, you know, Africa's youth benefit, which is at the same time a, a kind of a youth time bomb, you know, kind of like lots of young people, lots of potential, but not many opportunities and frequently not many educational opportunities, you know, so so they, one, one sees very much a very, very kind of stark snapshot, you know, between the two where China has this highly educated population of young people who can't find jobs. And then Africa has this massive youth population who frequently can't find jobs or education. You know, and then other countries, you know, like facing these kind of dire labor shortages. So it's all it's all of these issues kind of fit together, you know, and, and need to be need to be seen in, you know, kind of in, in its other context. It's so refreshing to have the chance to speak with young people like Yi Jun too. You know, for us to break out of our normal, regular, you know, old academics and scholars and analysts and old people like us. And so I, it's, I just, I love being around young people and I love talking to young people. And that's why I said when I one day get old, I don't think I'm old right now, but people do tell me I'm old. But when I get really old, the last thing I want to do is be around other people like me. And I want to be around people like <laughs> like Jen who give energy and life to things. So let's leave the conversation there. Uh, this was a fascinating demographic discussion. It touched on so many different issues. We've got, as Kobus pointed out, some fascinating 
previous interviews on this subject that I invite you to go through our archive. We've got almost 700 shows now in the archive, Kobus. Can you believe that? We're going to cross 700 I, I, very soon. That itself makes us all very old. <laughs> oh, I guess it does, doesn't it? Man, it just it goes by. It's still, And it's funny because, again, when we started this in 2010, we said we can do this for a few months, but how many issues are going to be able to talk about related to China, Africa? And here we are, 13 years later, 700 episodes, two shows a week now. It's really incredible. If this is the kind of thing that you like, we would love for you to join our reader community. And we produce a daily brief that goes out to thousands of diplomats, of scholars, of analysts, of corporate leads, NGO activists. It's a fantastic piece of work that the team at the China Global South puts out. And your subscription directly benefits and supports this kind of independent journalism about China. Most importantly, the daily brief that we provide and the newsletters that we do in French and Arabic are designed specifically to save you time. So, Kobus, we get a big complaint from people that they don't subscribe to our service because they say they have too much to read. And this is exactly the kind of service that is meant to address that problem. That what we do is we spend six to eight hours every day pouring through all of the sources, all of the news feeds, all of the tweets and social media, and we literally save you the effort from doing that. We filter out the noise. We then give you only a kind of a condensed version every day of what's going on with China in South Asia, in Africa, in the Americas, and every day it's different. So today's edition was all about India and South Asia. Yesterday, we focused on Uganda. Earlier, we focused on Brazil and South America, and that's just in the space of a week. So if you want to follow what's going on and what China is doing all over the world, and you want to do it in about five minutes a day, go to China globalsouth.com slash subscribe. We'll give you 30 days for free. Once again, chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. We'd love for you to join our community of readers and to be a part of the work that we're doing. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Once again, Kobus, happy year of the rabbit, year of the cat to everybody around the world who's celebrating uh, Lunar New Year this coming week. We wish you just prosperity and good fortune in the year ahead. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on this show. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at China GS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrique on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>